This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast number 95 with guest Martha Atkins. All links and resources you hear in this podcast can be found by going to yourkickasslife.com forward slash 95. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode. As always, I am excited that you're here. I am excited to bring you my guest today. And this is a first. This is a topic I have never talked about before. I have never talked about this on my blog in how many years have I been blogging now? Like seven or eight. Never talked about it. And that is the topic of death grief and dying. And we'll get into it a little bit more, you know, why I decided to have Martha on. This by far has been one of my favorite conversations. And I've had a lot of kick-ass people on the podcast in 95 episodes covering several years now. But this has been, it was such a really rich, thoughtful insightful conversation. And I hope you stick around, even though you know maybe you've never had anyone die in your life yet. And maybe you're like, well, this isn't for me. I think this is for everyone. We're talking about not just death and dying. We're talking about grief, which goes beyond just people who die in our life. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And I just wanted to let you know that this is last call for registration for the home study version of the self-love revolution master's course. And this is a class that I have taught live several times with my best friend and colleague, Amy Smith. And we completely scrapped the curriculum last year and redid it. We narrowed it down to four main topics around self-love. That is the inner critic, something I always talk about, self-worth, which is very closely related to the inner critic. We also go over forgiveness which is hugely important in self-love, forgiving of yourself and forgiving of others, as well as emotions. That was something we added in because we felt it kept coming up, kept coming up in our classes that we teach with women and our one-on-one -on -one clients. So we decided to add it into this program. We're very proud of this curriculum. We're offering it at a deep discount because it's the home study version. If you buy it tomorrow, the 21st, you can still get it. And, you know, just for the sake of complete transparency, it is a home study version that we'll have at the selfloverevolution.com from here on out, but the price is going to go up tomorrow. And there's a really awesome bonus of a live group call with us that is going to drop off. So today, April 20th is the last day to get that. So go to the selfloverevolution.com and join the many, many women who are already have started the program, but don't worry, you're not late. That's why it's a home study program. <laughs> you can do it at your own pace. And I would love to have you there. And I would love to have you there on our live bonus call that we're going to be having. So before we get into the interview, let me tell you a little bit about Martha. Oh, and just FYI, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty <laughs> with this interview. I don't know, maybe it was poltergeist or something happening. So this interview starts different than my normal interviews. So it's fine. It's fine. Just in case you notice, no, it's not your podcast player playing tricks on you. It's just us. So Dr. Martha Jo Atkins, teacher of all things related to death, dying, and grief, helps individuals, families, and corporate teams manage loss in meaningful ways. 
Dr. Adkins is an author, CEO of her own company, and founder of the MJA Death and Dying Institute. And without further ado, my lovely ass kickers, here is Martha. Thank you for being here, Martha. I'm so excited. And, and what I was saying is that in 94 episodes, I have never talked about death, dying, and grief before. And before everyone runs away and stops listening, <laughs> stay, stay. Please stay. There are so many things I want to talk to you about. And again, you are the first person I've had on to talk about this, partly because I don't know many people who are experts at this. I, I just know one person and that's you. And because I never, I never thought I'd have someone on to talk about this. I mean, we talk about all things personal development and, you know, probably in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Andrea, no one wants to listen to you talk about death, dying and grief. But I think this is so important in personal development. It is. So thank you. It is. It is. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for asking me. Yeah. And so let's start kind of from the beginning. You're an expert on this topic. So give us a snapshot of, and you have your PhD in this. So what did you study to get here? And what do you do on a regular basis in your work with people? So I was, I was 23 when my brother Jim died. He had a heart defect called long QT syndrome. And he was asleep in his bed and didn't wake up the next morning. He was a lawyer. He was 37. I was traveling with my family on a family vacation, and, and my brother John called in the middle of the night and told us that Jim had died. And everything I knew about death and dying at that point uh, kind of went out the window. I, I had been working in a children's hospital. I spent a lot of time with kids who were dying and their siblings. I took kids into the intensive care unit and you know, did visitations, and we would do footprints and handprints. And if a baby died, we would take little pieces of their hair and put it on paper and make little memorial kinds of things. And I, that's, that's what I did. I, I worked at that time as a child life specialist and we, we helped kids with their developmental processes in the hospital. But I spent a lot of time doing death and dying work and I knew about it professionally, but personally I didn't have a clue. And then Jim died and it was this whole other thing. And I, I was bereft. The, the term bereavement comes from this word bereafian, which means to rob. I, and I felt robbed. My brother was gone. I loved him. I'd never seen my parents so sad. And it was awful. It was just awful. We got through the first year and I thought everything's going to be better. And it wasn't really better the second year. It's like that invisible bump in the road. And we went over and it's like, well, crap, I'm still here. Mm -hmm. So I, I loved working at the children's hospital and it also became really difficult because I was sad. And I ended up leaving, going back to school, getting my master's in counseling. And when I was in my last class, I was asked to write a paper about starting a children's service in San Antonio that didn't exist. So I wrote about starting a children's grief center. My professor encouraged me to do what I had written about. So I started the Children's Bereavement Center of South Texas, and I ran that until 2005. So I had my counseling degree at that point, had all this experience with children, and then my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she went through the treatments, and I left the bereavement center. I started my Ph.D. in counselor education, and Mom was diagnosed with metastases all in about a three-week time mm -hmm. frame in 2005. Her dying process was another pivotal experience for me, and specifically the visions that she had. So there's this whole process around dying that happens, and then she had these these visions of her family, and they came to see her, and it was very comforting to her. It was very comforting to me. So I ended up doing my doctoral research on the experiences of witnesses at the bedside. And my work now is around dying and teaching people about dying and 
dipping into grief and helping people understand that all those feelings that we have are, are part of the process and we move along with them. And so that that's how I got here. That's wow. the short version. And so what, and I know that you have worked extensively with children, but what is, what is the work that you do now look like? Now I work with people who are dying and I work with family members who want to help people who are dying. So right. I've, I've written a book called Signposts of Dying. And it talks about the behaviors, the language, the metaphors that dying people use as they are making their way out of the world. And we've just come up with a model to teach from. And there's this, you know, people used to look at the dying process. They put dying people in the back halls of hospitals and leave them alone. And, you know, there wasn't any more hope for them and we don't need to talk to them. And Kubler-Ross came in and said, you know, these are people. And they're having a process, and we need to engage with them. So, so people that don't know, Kubler-Ross, from yeah. what I understand in the little research yeah. that I've done, is she she was sort of like the pioneer studying and talking about death, dying, and grief, correct? Totally. Okay. Yeah. So she, she did amazing work, and she brought the conversation around death and dying to the national, the world consciousness. She really did for non-Indigenous people. Indigenous people have been doing death and dying and grieving beautifully, mm-hmm. and we... No. <laughs> we don't. We we could learn a lot from them. Right. Totally could learn a lot from them. I talked with this Peruvian guy one time, and he was talking about his mother. And in Peru, in his tradition, I'll just say in his tradition, the oldest son helps the mother die, and the oldest daughter helps the father die. And from the very earliest ages, the contract is that that parent helps the child understand about life and death. So they're always teaching and when it comes time for the parent to die, this child is prepared because the parent has prepared them. I just think it's beautiful. So this guy talked about going and being with his mother and telling her he was going to help her. And and then came the grieving, and he said, our tradition is that you go home and do nothing for three days. And he said there had been no rain in California for I don't know how long. And it rained those whole three days And as he sat in his house and looked at his window and didn't do anything. And I think we we don't give ourselves permission to sit and be with those feelings. And when we don't do that, that grief manifests in other ways. Girl. Girl. <laughs> yeah, well, which, which is a great segue, actually, for me to ask you about grief. Yeah. So first and foremost, how do you define grief? Oh, God, it depends on the day. Because I think what's common, let me start here. Go for it. I think what's common is people, when they think of the word grief, they think of that it's only happening when someone has died. Yeah. It would be nice if that was the only time it happened, but that is not. Awesome. It's, it is, grief is a normal response to a loss and it's any kind of loss. So a divorce or you're a kid and your parent goes to prison or you move to the East Coast when you lived on the West Coast or your parents get divorced or you get divorced. It's any kind of loss mm-hmm. and the feelings attached. Yeah, I also want to, I love the examples that you gave. And I think, I think a lot of my listeners might also resonate with like friendships ending. Sure. Infertility, I think is a big one where grief is involved. So yes, yes. Yeah. And people who who, miscarriages Mm -hmm. and you have a baby and nobody ever talks about it again. I was with my aunt Margaret on her death and she wanted to make sure there was a marker for her baby who her husband said, we can't ever talk about again and we're not going to name him. And I said to Aunt Margaret, did you, did you name your baby? And she had. And she got a headstone. Her kids put a headstone out, you know, 80 years later. 
And she had lived with that her whole life, and she was able to take care of it there at the end, take care of what she needed to take care of. We, we are, I just, I, I want more people to do things like that and honor, honor their losses. Because in the honoring, you make room for more goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was sharing with you before we started recording that, you know, death, grief, and dying kept like showing up on my radar, whether it was like a regular podcast that I listened to where they had a guest and then, you know, you came, I've known, we kind of run in the same circles on social media, but like something came up in my newsfeed that you had done and all these different things. And I'm always sort of paying attention, especially when things are different, like, okay, universe, what are you trying to tell me? Why are you sending me all these signals? And what I found out later from paying attention was that I had never, you know, most of my listeners know my story and how a decade ago I got divorced and it was very traumatic. And I, I think I did, I pat myself on the back that I have, I have mourned the loss of my ex-husband in that relationship. And to be honest with you, I was mourning the loss of that relationship way before it ended. Yeah. But what I didn't ever mourn, and it happened very suddenly when we split up, was the loss of the family that I had created, which was his family, you know, since I was 17 years old and there I was 30, having to walk away from them, which is definitely a part of divorce. Anyone who's had a major breakup or divorce um, knows what that feels like. It's not just losing the one person. And so I'm in 2016 and I'm like, you know what? I don't think I've ever grieved losing them. And I think that that's probably something that's not talked about. Like people are like, yeah, it's painful. It sucks that I lost them. But for me, it was like devastating. Like I am devastated that they are not a part of my life anymore. And that that was a byproduct of, of my splitting up with him. And what I wanted to, to just to tag on to the conversation is that anyone listening who's feeling that, I think if you do what I did, because I made my grief mean something about my current life. And I was like, well, if I, if I'm still like really upset about it, what does that say about my current marriage or my current friendships, et cetera. And to like, what I, the conclusion I've come to is it doesn't mean Jack. (laughs) (laughs) I am a human who is broken hearted over losing these people. And I have every right to grieve them. And if I don't, it yes. shows up in other places of my life. It does. It shows up in the weirdest places. Yes. In the weirdest it, times. What do you think were like in common? I think for me, it just, it was showing, I don't even, I just, who knows where it was showing up, but I, I, there is a, an element of permission. I think that some people need to give themselves yeah. to feel it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And we get, we get fussed at if we're down or need to have time alone. And then you say, you know, I'm, thinking about this loss that happened 10 years ago and people roll their eyes and go, God, isn't she over that yet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm really not. I'm not. For me, it was more like rolling my eyes at myself. <laughs> yes. I was like, I, I told my coach, I said several times, yes. I'm like, it's been 10 years. Yes. And she's like, you've said that twice. Yes. Like that means something yes. like there should be an expiration date where you wake up on the 10th anniversary and poof, it's gone. It's a great coach. And that's not how it works. Yep. That's exactly right. So I was being hard on myself for it. Yes. And how how is that now? It's been a process. And, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, my friends like smile at me because, you know, I didn't feel really any of my feelings, quote unquote, appropriately until I got sober in 2011. So now I still like, I describe it as like throwing a cat into a bathtub. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like clawing at the edges, trying to get out. I'm like a glass case of emotions. Mm -hmm. So I just, it is definitely for me, a conscious decision to grieve. Like if I hear a song that comes on and like, you know, my throat, like, Oh, I just let it happen. 
good for you. And, and then again, it goes back to like not making it mean something. Yeah. And I feel exhausted. And it's just, it's just part of the process. It totally is. Good for it's you. It's not fun. Like, I- <laughs> no. But it's taken you somewhere. It's totally taken. Mm-hmm. And, and I love what you said a few minutes ago that it opens you up for new things. Like, it's almost like a, this might sound really dramatic, but it's almost like a rebirth in some way to, to actually grieve something. I don't think that's dramatic at all. I think the death of someone or the death of something is an initiation into a next part of your life. And initiations are hard and they're, they are births. Uncomfortableness and you're not sure what to do and how to be and it's a new landscape. And how do you live without that person or how do you live without the, the life that you had before? And your identity changes. And mm-hmm. then how do you step into that and own that and then still be human and have the feelings? And it, it's a big wad of stuff. It is. Very, it's tangled up. It is. Sure. It is complex. Indeed. Yeah. And so in your opinion, what, ha- or, you know, at research, what happens when people don't grieve? Like, where does it go? So I think it sits in our cells. I, I know people who... 20 years later, we'll have an event of some kind that will open them and they will cry tears that are ancient, just mm-hmm. freaking ancient. And, and I really do believe it sits on our body. We do. We are meaning making creatures and we try to make meaning of everything. And sometimes, sometimes we just need to let it roll and let feelings roll and let the anger or whatever, whatever it is that needs to come up, come up and out. And then you move. I had a trainer one time and I had a fever and he said, yeah, I wanted to stay in bed because I had the fever. And he's like, no, man, you need to run. You need to run that fever out of yourself. And grief is like that sometimes. Sometimes you need to stay in bed with your grief and sometimes you need to run it. You need to listen to the sad songs. You need to get on YouTube and watch the very best American Idol audition that'll make you cry. I don't know what, whatever it is for people, Mm -hmm. but whatever can get you to emote to let yourself do that because it does. It sits your body. I agree with you. I had a coach that told me that a long time ago. And at first I was like, what? That is like the most woo-woo thing I've ever heard. (laughs) But now that I've experienced it, and I I think that that's why possibly why certain people come to you in your dreams. And I also am a believer that like our brains kind of, and this is like, I've done a little bit of research on EMDR and I've, I've done EMDR myself. And I think our brains kind of don't know what to do with it. Like with all these memories and they're like, what, where do I go? Where do you want me to put these? And if you're not doing what your body wants you to do, like the healing process and, you know, watching those sad YouTube videos, mm-hmm. our brain's going to keep going. And and it's, I think that the brain kind of gets confused. It does. I think so too. I work with people a lot now on rituals. That sounds really woo-woo and it's totally not. I mean, rituals can be just as simple as lighting a candle in the morning and So lighting a candle to honor your body or lighting a candle to honor your process today that you are a single person or, you know, whatever it is. And there are more complex rituals that can be used for people. There's this really great, she's a teacher from West Africa. Her name is Sabonfu Some. And Sabonfu means keeper of the rituals, but she goes around America teaching Europeans about how to use rituals to release grief. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's this other reality that we're often not exposed to. And there's permission giving and opportunities to flail around and the things that, that we're not supposed to do as uh, proper women. And it, it's pretty amazing. Really pretty amazing. Yeah. Proper, yeah. I, I believe that. Like I believe 
I'm, I have to say, I've not experienced anyone really, really close to me dying. My paternal grandfather died when I was five. And my only memory of that, and no one talked to me about death and dying ever, Yeah. but I was five. And the only memory I have is my grandmother, who was very tall, grabbing me by the hand and saying, we need to go say goodbye to your grandpa. And I, I was five. I didn't know what she meant. And I remember, it's so strange. I remember the sound of my Mary Janes on the linoleum down the hallway. And I had to like almost run to keep up with her Yeah. and then going to his hospital bed and seeing him laying there and I thought he was sleeping. And then I was like, what do I do now? So it's so strange how we, how we don't talk to children. I have a question about that in a minute, but uh, by the way, you guys, all of the links and resources will be at yourkickasslife.com forward slash 95. And we'll have a link to that woman that you just mentioned. Yeah. But I, I love that about rituals. And, and I think that, you know, once I had children and had the experience of that primal feeling of, I mean, and, and my audience knows, like, I have issue with control. Like, that is my number one thing I work on is surrendering. <laughs> and when you have a baby, like, that is like, you are put to the test because you have absolutely no choice. Right. And I, I wonder if it's the same thing with that deep grief of losing someone of just almost, and I think that, and myself included, a lot of my, my listeners, like, that's one of their biggest fears is like losing control. Like, if I grieve, I don't trust myself enough that I can't come back from that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being in my therapist's office and she's saying, are you, are you going to let yourself cry? I'm like, I, if I start crying, I'm never going to stop. And she put her hand on my hand and she said, you will, you will. Mm-hmm. It was just this really simple, you will. And it's not as bad. It won't be as bad as it was when you first found out. It was just this really gentle kind of, come on, you can do this. You can do this. But God, it, it is that huge fear that I, I'm just going to be a pile on the floor and somebody's going to have to scoop me up and carry me away to a mental hospital. Yeah. But that, that doesn't typically doesn't happen. No, you, you have your, seen the movies. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I believe that typically doesn't happen, but I, I make up that there is that like primal feeling of just having to kind of lose your shit for a little bit there. And it's just part of the process. Yeah. I have gone primal gone primal twice and I will tell you those are the the two most cathartic experiences I've ever had and mm-hmm. as much as the deaths of these people I love have changed me those two experiences also changed me and the other thing about that was they were witnessed I don't know if you've ever completely mm-hmm. lost your shit in front of somebody I have not it is terrifying and then it is glorious if you are if you're with the right people in the right people who yeah. deserve to right. witness that exactly mm-hmm. exactly yeah, I talk about that a lot over here and because much of the work I do is around Brene Brown's research. And she always says, like, you share with people your story with people who have earned the who deserve right it. Exactly. It. And that that sounds like the same. Yep, I think yeah, so. People who can, your relationship can bear the weight. Of yeah, it. yeah. Well, like one more thing about rituals is I, I asked the question a little while ago to my Instagram audience, what they would want to know, what would they want to ask you if they have the chance? And I'm going to ask you a couple of them. And here's one of them. And Natty asked, she says, my mom passed away 12 years ago. I still have moments when big things happen in life mm-hmm. that I so want her here. What are some prayers or positive quotes I can look at during these times? So you mentioned lighting a candle. So what other things do you advise people to do? I invite people to go out to nature. I think nature is very grounding, whatever that looks like for you. If you find a park bench or if you can go out to the ocean or whatever it is. And writing is always a good thing. If you can write a note and tell your mother 
what's been happening. And often I will have people light that on fire and send it up. There's a, a saying in West Africa, the fire makes a way. And so I talk about how you light that fire and send it up into the ethers and imagine that it's getting up to her and imagine that she knows. The physical act of doing the ritual is part of the process. And then people kind of, oh, Martha, I don't want to do that. When you actually sit and do that, it it changes you. It changes you inside because you've done something. Another thing you can do is get a rock and you can, this is, uh, I do, I should qualify this. I do shamanic training. So some of these things are that. They they talk to rocks. You talk to a rock and you tell the rock about your, whatever the experience is. And the rock holds that. There's a frequency that you want to put out and there's a frequency that you want to receive. Telling the stories and then sending them back out to the earth. It's a way of letting the stories be held in a different way, in a broader way. Boy, that was rambly. (laughs) so damn rambly what i took away from that is for one it's you're getting out with nature and you are connecting with the earth like literally like talking to a rock like yes which i don't think very many of us like oh god what is she talking about a rock (laughs) you know going to hospital rooms and and they want a particular energy in the hospital room to tell the rock what the energy they want. They want people who are kind when they step in. They want people who are going to take good good care of their person. They want, you know, whatever. And then put that rock in the corner of the room, and it radiates. And it's amazing who ends up showing up and who ends up not showing up. The person who's been the pain in the ass for the couple of days is now off, and they don't come back. So setting space like that can be really helpful. So writing letters, going to nature... Lighting the candles, speaking out loud, whatever it is you want her to know. I do the same. I'm, stuff happens with me. My mom's been gone 10 years now, and I, I miss her. And there are times where I just, I'm the only one around. I say, hey, mom, let me tell you what's cooking. And I talk to her. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So, Natty, I hope that was helpful. And thanks for asking the question. I'll have, I have one more question a little bit later on. But I want to talk about kids for a second and more specifically so a lot of my listeners are parents on this podcast or you know going to be parents and I talk a lot about feeling emotions making sure I want just everyone listening to know that my take on that is like showing emotions is okay (laughs) yeah but because many of us grew up in homes where the vulnerability of showing emotions was not was not really welcomed and along with feeling emotions is showing emotions to other people when they're happening so can we talk about that with kids? What do you teach parents to do in this case? Like, for example, if if the parent has a friend that dies, like a family friend dies, should they grieve only to their adult friends and their partners, families, or should they show their grief to their children? And if so, how, how should they go about that? So my rule of thumb is if you need to lay down on the floor and kick and scream and cry, that's likely not helpful for your child right. to see. If you are sitting at the dinner table and you get the lump in your throat and the tears start rolling down your cheek a little bit, that's okay. You are the model for your child. And if they can learn that it's okay to share that stuff in a safe place with the right people, we were talking about earlier, that's a really good thing to learn early. And, mm-hmm. and it's not kids worry about their parents. So saying to the child, mommy's sad because her friend died. It's a mm-hmm. great opportunity to do a little bit of death education and uh, kids will kids will ask what they need to know it's much like the sex talk so where do babies come from they come from their mommies and then you wait for the next question 
So mm-hmm. it's mommy sad because her friend died. And then you wait for the next question. How did she die? You tell them, set it in kid-friendly language for them. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time teaching parents how to how to break news to their child about different kinds of ways people have died or different kind of situations. Wanted them to know, and I want you guys to know is, we adults have what I call a death data bank. Every death or every grief experience we've had through our whole lives is in our brain. It's in there. So if I say to you, I was driving along the highway and I saw a car wreck and there was a yellow sheet on the side of the road. What does that mean to you? Well, the yellow sheet stands out, probably. Yeah. yeah. So in what, what do you think is what's under the yellow sheet? Oh, a dead body. For yeah, sure. exactly. Mm-hmm. So I have a kindergartner I'm working with and she's in a car wreck with her mom. And she's telling me about all of the, you know, the ambulances are there and the police cars are there and, and there's a yellow sheet on the road. She has no clicks for that yellow sheet. All the other adults are freaking out because her mom has been killed in a car accident. And this girl is just telling the story. She's telling the story that she has seen. It's, it's the events as she knows them because her death data bank is 60 months on the planet. And ours is very broad. Mm-hmm. So eventually there's a conversation. Your mommy's body was hurt so bad that her body can't live anymore. And, and then more conversations after that. Adults, kids look to adults for how to act. Mm-hmm. And I do encourage adults to share and to have the kids around and to let the kids ask questions, whether that's a death loss or a secondary loss around, you know, I don't get to go to the same school anymore. There's all right. kinds of different losses that happen. But yes, showing emotion and talking to your kids and having opportunities for them to talk to you, I think is vital. I love that distinction. Like, so if you're going to go primal, probably not in front yeah. of that, but, yeah. and I think... And conversation is like the really important part. Yeah. And, and kids, you know, lots of times they don't want to sit and talk to you if you're looking at them eye to eye. And I encourage parents to take their kids and go for drives. There's mm-hmm. lots, lots of conversations that happen shoulder to shoulder where you're looking, both looking straight ahead versus looking at each other because the kid doesn't feel so put on the spot. And it's just, I wonder questions. I wonder, I wonder how you're feeling about this or I wonder what happened with this or... I was feeling kind of sad yesterday. I wonder how you were feeling yesterday. Or I wonder how you were feeling when you saw me crying. Yeah. yeah. That's what I've asked my kids. That's, and what have they said? Well, my, I think my son said he was scared. And we talked about that. Mm-hmm. And then my daughter was sad for me. Yeah. I think they both said that they were sad for me. But what's interesting is one of the reasons I asked that, one of my Instagram people did ask me that as well. But I, and I, I wonder if this is common, you know, I grew up in, I was born in 75, I grew up in the seventies and eighties. And I think, you know, a lot of our parents did not know how to talk about feelings or emotions or, or grief. And my mother's brother died suddenly. I think I was about nine and I came home from school and my dad was home, which was unusual. And and we're standing in the hallway with him and we had a very narrow hallway. And at the end of the hallway was my parents' bedroom and it was dark and the door was open. And my dad said, your uncle Gus died and your mom's in there and don't, just don't bother her. For three days, Aww. my mom stayed in a dark room. And when she came out, I'm pretty sure that she had been prescribed Valium or something because she looked like a zombie when she would come out, the rare occasion that she would come out. Yeah. I, and I was, an, I grew up an only child. I, I have half siblings, but they're much older and out of the house. And I was terrified. Like, yeah. No one talked to me about what was going on. My mom was like comatose. And then we went to his funeral. My mom has seven sisters and, you know, it was their only brother. 
and my aunts were all together crying and still no one has talked to me. And I was kind of excited because I got to hang out with my cousins and it was a big Catholic church and it was an open casket. So I get up with everybody and I had never seen a dead body and I'm, I'm, you know, in line walking down to go see him. And my mom sees me and I got in trouble and she's like yelling at me to go sit down. Like, don't, don't go see him. You know, she was trying to protect me. She didn't want me to see a dead body. And, but so it was so confusing and so, so, you know, obviously I grew up totally confused (laughs) about death and, and what, what that means and, and what grief looks like for both of my parents. And mm-hmm. so, so now for me, one of the things that I've decided is like, my children are not going to have that same experience. And I've cried in front of my children, but, and it's, it's not perfect every time, you know, I probably make mistakes, but one thing I do is, is have conversations with them. What's, what's also really interesting. Kids are so Amazing. I broke down one time in the kitchen and it's a long story. When we first moved out to North Carolina, the the job that brought us out here turned out to not be so amazing. It was hard for us for a few weeks. Luckily, everything worked out. My husband has a great, amazing job, better one. But there was a couple of weeks that were really hard for us. And I had gotten off the phone with my mom and the conversation didn't go great. And Jason walked in the door and I broke down and started crying. And my kids were standing there and I sat down at the bottom of the steps, just feeling defeated and And it wasn't primal. It was just, you know, just crying. And both of my kids came and sat down next to me, right on, on what like flame, you know, one on either side. And I'm talking to Jason and I'm telling him what happened. And, you know, I talked to my therapist about it and she said that was actually really good modeling, Mm -hmm. not only healthy crying, but talking about what's going on that was appropriate in front of your children and talking to your husband about it so they can see parents facing each other working through stuff. And I did talk to my, my kids later about, you know, what they thought of that. And, and I'm not going to say that that was like not scary. It was kind of scary. And the whole yeah. time I'm thinking like, should I keep together? Should I stop crying? Should I make pretend everything's just fine? I'm like, no, cause that's how it was in my family. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want the same thing. Yeah. It's a beautiful exchange. You gave them quite a gift by allowing them to see you like that and then be able to have dialogue about that. And then the next day they see you more back like your regular self. And then they know that that happens too. Mm-hmm. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite a beautiful experience of modeling. Yeah. I think that I just want them to know and this is what, and you know, this is not to blame and shame my parents. They absolutely, they, they passed down what they knew. We do the best we can. They yep. did. They did. They, they did a really, really great job with what they had. I have to, I have to give them that, but I want my kids to know that all of their feelings are okay. Yeah. That's sometimes hard for me because I want to fix it for them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make them feel better all the time. Yep. But yeah, grief is, you know, what I'm really curious about is do children grieve differently than adults in your opinion? Oh, heavens. Yes. Really? Yes. yes How yes. so? So the analogy I like to use is about a backpack and there's, there's only so much of the experience that they can handle in a moment. Mm-hmm. So when, when I worked at the bereavement center, the kids would come in six to eight or six to eight thirty, and they would be with other kids. And sometimes they would talk about what was happening, but most of the time they would just, they would play. I was going to say just play, but it's not just play. They're working out mm-hmm. stuff in their play. And every once in a while we would have these profound, deep conversations that would last for maybe four minutes, but they were deep. And if you were paying attention, you knew how deep they were. And then they would go off and go to their other place and 
go play and be happy. So it's like I can hold a grief backpack for a little bit and I can be sad for a little bit and then I've got to let it go and I've got to go do something else. The kids get the wiggles. They, they cannot sit in their chair. They cannot sit still at school. Concentration is different. And it, it's, you know, I say it's different. Adults are that way too, but we've learned to modulate and the kids don't have all of those filters and the shaming stuff that adults have. So they just kind of let things roll. They don't have language like you and I have language. So there's a lot of play responses they'll, they'll show. So here's an example. A kid was in the passenger seat. Mom is driving. They're going down an interstate here and the kid pops the seat and he throws the seat backwards and he puts his hands on his chest and starts doing chest compressions on himself. And his mother pulls over to the side of the road and is having a conniption fit that he's doing this. And then he doesn't understand why she's pulled over or why she's so upset. Because he's just reenacting what he saw, which was uh-huh. several months ago. He in the back seat of his car. His dad had a heart attack in the passenger seat. And EMS came in and they had to do chest compressions. And, you know, they did all that before they got him out. The kid saw all that. He couldn't say, I am so bereft that my father <laughs> had a heart attack in the front seat and I don't know what to do with myself. Mm-hmm. So how it comes out for him is through his play. I cannot tell you how many X-Men have been killed in my presence or buried in the sand or it's that. They're processing in their kid way, in their in their play way which is as important as adults doing it with their conversations in a therapist's office. That's fascinating. It is pretty fascinating, isn't it? It's a whole other language. And if you get the language, it's amazing. It's really amazing. How that, like what a gift it is to be able to witness that in children. It's it's cool. It's really cool. Deb from Instagram has a question and she says, I'd like to know how to let go, how to stop feeling guilt every time I have a happy moment, how to let go of the guilt for living after witnessing a traumatic death. I think I'm not going to talk about rocks again, but I am going to talk about energy. We, when we witness a traumatic event, our energy changes. It's as though we are not all in our body. The picture that comes to mind is like somebody that's, they're standing on the ground and, and then there's another superimposed version of their, their whole self, but it's like the feet start at the knees. So there's a part of them that's trying to come up and out, and then there's the part that's standing on the ground. And in getting those two parts back together is kind of essential. And part of that happens, I'm going to talk about nature again, is going out and being, being in nature and practicing some meditation kinds of things and working on your thoughts and figuring out what of the guilt or what of the sadness is serving you. Because there's something there that you're hanging on to because it's serving you. And can you find something else to take its place that will serve you in a different way? And can you make meaning in a different way? There's this great research now on meaning making and how we how we as humans make sense of losses. And we know that people who witness traumatic events or are part of a traumatic event have a harder time making meaning. And when you have a harder time making meaning, it's more difficult to integrate the loss into your regular everyday experience. So A, you're not crazy. It's a thing. When you see something awful, it changes your molecules and you have to figure out a way to live with that in a different way. The other thing is we talked about identity earlier. The person you were before you witnessed the traumatic event is different than the person you are now. And the other piece of that is when people first started talking to me about my thoughts and then I could change my thoughts, I thought it was a bunch of Mm -hmm. 
And I did. I was like, every once in a while, I still do think you're crazy. I feel this way because I'm supposed to feel this way. And this terrible thing happened. And yes, it did. It is. It is. And there's grief attached to that. And you honor the grief and honor the person you are now and honor the event. And, you know, this, this is kind of a hard question to answer in a, a short time, but mm-hmm. it's, it's hard. It's just hard. I think the bottom line of it is there's work to be done. There is totally work Sorry, to be done. Sorry, Deb. <laughs> yeah, I wish, I wish I had, I wish I had a really easy, yeah, you can do this and this and this, but I don't have that. It's you find people to, to hold that for you as you talk about it. You find ways to release it a little bit of a t- at a time, shake up the Coke bottle and you open it a little bit to let the air out and recognize that that event is going to be with you and you, you get to figure out ways to live with it. I make up too that it's pretty common. Like they call it survivor's guilt. And yeah. Yeah. Not that that makes it any easier on the people that are feeling it, but yeah, it does sound like there there's work to be done with a grief counselor or, you know, someone like you, a grief coach. Or- yeah. There's a guy named Nehemiah who has a website called aftertalk.com and mm-hmm. he is, he's really good at stuff like this. We'll, we'll, I'll get that link for you too, Andrea. And that would be a good place for you to go and, oh, thank you. and, and check out. Yeah. I, I want to kind of underscore something that you said when you were explaining that. And you said... What I, what I heard over here was that you, you need to accept that you are now a different person than you were before that happened. Yeah. And I know in my experience, when hard things have happened, I feel like, okay. And it, it, what's funny, my, I, my therapist laughed when I, I walked into her office when I was going through my divorce and I said, all right, how many sessions do you think it's going to take for yeah, me to get right. over this? Because I'm ready starting today. <laughs> and she was like, oh my God. And what she told me was, I don't know. And you probably won't ever be. And I refused that. I was like, I object. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. And and I really like it was so incredibly painful. I was like, there has got to be a way out of this hole. And kicking and screaming. And I, I have now come to realize like I am not the same person I am as before I went through my traumatic it wasn't death, but it was it was a very traumatic divorce and I just, the, the, the less resistance I put against it, the more I accept that I'm not the same and the less meaning I put on that, yeah. easier it's become. Yeah. And she also told me something interesting and I would love your take on this. She said, they call it a grief cycle for a reason because it is a cycle. Yeah. And she warned me ahead of time and I'm glad she did. She's like, you may go through the whole cycle, whatever it looks like for you and be good for like six months. And then something happens Mm -hmm. you get triggered again and you find yourself right where you were. Mm -hmm. And that has happened to me. It's me off. It's annoying, isn't it? Resistance doesn't help. No, resistance doesn't help. I have a friend that talks about grief as that are tears. The tears that we cry over losing someone or changes that we have are make a canoe. We have whatever that thing is that we need to release. Our tears make the canoe go over to, to the next place. So when we have these big emotions, I think we get scared of them and we think we're not supposed to have them. What the hell's wrong with me? And this is happening again. And I'm so sad and la la la. And it's serving a purpose. It's helping us move somehow. And even if we get to the point where I can't believe I'm crying again, and that moves us to go find a professional, that's movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's all taking us somewhere and it's all helping our soul unfold into its next thing. And we get so caught Mm -hmm. up in, in the moments of it. And so frustrated. And there's this whole bigger picture of 
we as humans are whole. We're not broken. These things happen and we get to figure out how to, how to be with them. And whatever the loss is, that's, that's helping us figure other things out about our life. We figure out how to find more joy. We figure out how to connect with people in different ways. We figure out how to show up in the world in different ways. It, it changes us. And I think we get frustrated and we think it's all bad. And I don't think it's all bad. I think it just is. Mm. It's that whole, what you said, like it's, it's learning to be with that. Yeah. Yeah. I know that for me and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that we are, we are a country and a culture that, that numbs. And I was one of those people and still have to rage against the machine a little bit with work and other things. But for me, I numbed because I could not be with life. I could not be with the feelings and emotions, even of joy and happiness and transcendence. Like the goal of my life, honestly, Martha, like of late has been like just to be with life and everything that comes at me and not run away from it and numb out and hide. And whoo, like if you can do that, like you are winning at life. <laughs> and it's, it's a wild ride, isn't it? It's a wild ride. So my friend died last week. She died last Thursday. And I, this is the first time that I've had grief over a person in 10 years because mom's been gone 10 years. And I, I got word that she had died Thursday morning and I did not know what to do with myself. I walked around the house kind of looking at things and trying to make decisions. And I thought I got to go to the ocean. And I realized now I couldn't be inside of a building. I mean, like everything was crushing. I needed to be outside in the open because I had all these giant emotions. And I, I went to the store and I needed sugar. Talk about addictions. I have my sugar addiction. And I couldn't find what I wanted. And, and there was a cupcake there. And there's this whole thing with my friend and a cupcake. So I got a cupcake. I got my kite. I had my dog. I went to the ocean and I flew a kite and I thought about her and I cried a little bit. I ended up staying all day, dug a fire pit at sunset and had this big fire. And... I just, I wanted to honor her and I wanted to honor my feelings and it ended up being a really beautiful day. And then I crashed for two days. Totally, completely don't close the door. Don't get out of bed. I listened to you talking about your mom and I was not taking any value or anything. I was just, <laughs> I just like, God, I just want chicken soup and I want to curl up in this bed. And I had forgotten what this feels like and it's okay. I kept telling myself, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And it took a little while, and I got out of it. We'll have her funeral on Saturday, and we'll have another round of whatever shows up. But I appreciate what you say so much about not resisting. And I understand people have to go to work, and they have to live their day. And there's a point where you just let yourself be. You don't shave your legs for two weeks, or you eat the food, or whatever it is. You're going to come back. You're, you're going to get back. It will happen. But letting yourself be in that space for a while can can be really helpful. Wow, this is such an important conversation. And I, I have one more question for sure. you before we wrap it up. And what surprises you about the work you do with people? So one of the great joys of my life is I get to talk to people who are who are actively dying or family members who are left behind and the person's gone. And there are all these little pieces of magic that show up around people leaving each other messages or people, the, the dying people seeing people that other people can't see. And 
just this non-ordinary experiences that happen around death and dying. And I get to hear about those. And as often as I hear about them, they still surprise me and delight me. It makes me want to keep talking to people and hearing their stories and hearing about the these little moments of holy. They, they're just little moments of holiness. And for me, I'm surprised that I get to hear so many and delighted. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's awesome. Absolutely awesome. I love that little pieces of holy. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for being here and having this con- this sacred conversation with you. Uh, my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And my listeners. And tell everyone where the best place they can find you and come and say hi. MarthaAtkins.com or you can come over to my uh my private Facebook page or my public Facebook page, Martha Atkins or Martha, Martha Joe Atkins. Atkins. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And, and y'all, the show notes, um, there are several things that I want you to go see. The things that Martha mentioned will be there at yourkickasslife.com forward slash 95. Also, we will have her TED Talk, which I highly recommend you sitting down and having a few minutes to to watch. Very fascinating. And your book will be on there as well. And let us know. I mean, again, you guys, this is the first time I've ever talked about this. And let us know what your biggest takeaway was. I would love to hear about that. And if you have any questions for Martha, I'd be happy to have you back. If people are like, wait, I want to ask Martha something else. So thank you again for being here. And until next time, everyone, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. 